everyone. Welcome, Robin Sills, Medically Speaking from St. Mary's Hospital. Welcome tonight to Medically Speaking on this hot, blusterly Rusterly evening, and I think that it's storming all around us. I know um, where our caller is calling from up in the Springfield area. I think it's stormy up there. We're waiting for some rain down here. I hope we get a little bit. I think Johnny tells me we're going to get rain tomorrow, which I hope because I don't want to have to go home and water tonight, Johnny. So I hope so. So welcome again to another edition of Medically Speaking. Um, the theme that we have had for this month, we started it on Friday, is called Don't Take a Turn for the Worse. And if you didn't have an opportunity to join us on Friday, Friday, we had with us Dr. Seth Klahosi, who is a primary care physician for the Trinity Health of New England Medical Group. Um, he's been with us for the last several years. He was a chief resident with us and now is in practice with us. And he took the topic from a primary care perspective, really, really talking about from a primary care physician, what he thinks um, should drive a patient to seek medical attention and what are some of the warning signs for certain things such as a stroke and a heart attack. And now what we're doing this evening is we're taking this topic, don't take a turn for the worse, and we're putting it more to a surgical perspective. So I have on the line with me a general surgeon from um, Mercy Hospital, one of our sister hospitals up in Springfield, Dr. Alexandra Ogradnik. Hi, Doc. Hi, how are you? Hi, great. I'm so glad that you could join me, and I'm so glad that I had the chance to actually meet you in person. I know. It was very nice. It was so fun. So Dr. Grodnick is a general surgeon, um, part of Trinity Health of New England Medical Group, and on staff at Mercy Medical Center. You're board certified in general surgery, and you completed a minimally invasive surgery fellowship, I believe, in Staten Island, correct? correct? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. And you did your general surgery residency at Danbury. And I just learned that you went to medical school at UConn. I did. How did we it not steal you ago. here down here? <laughs> How did I not get you down here at St. Mary's? I don't know. <laughs> well, we love female surgeons, so I'm really happy that you're just part of our family anyway, even if it's up in Mercy. And Mercy Hospital, I always say this to everyone, is very similar um, to St. Mary's. I go back and forth between the hospitals, and if anybody in the community has never had a chance here, if you're ever up in the Springfield area, Mercy Hospital is one of those hospitals like St. Mary's that has a lot of heart. So, I, I think so, too. I mean, it's a pretty small hospital, but I think that's what makes it a little bit better because everybody knows each other and we can certainly help each other out. It's no definitely. Specialty. Well, mm-hmm. I'm definitely going to invite you down here someday so you can take a tour of our hospital because I think it's really neat. <laughs> I, well, I think it's neat for the docs to get a sense of, of who we are and what we are and what's part of the system. I know that's been a great benefit to me. You know, as a nurse and being the physician liaison, I love going back and forth between here, St. Francis and Mercy and learning and, and sharing. It's It's been a really incredible opportunity. It's different for sure, but I think we're learning and we're getting there. I mean, every hospital is different, but we learn things from each other, that's for sure. That's for sure. So I appreciate you joining me tonight. Is it raining up there? Um, Actually, it's pretty bad. A couple minutes ago. It it passed a couple minutes ago. You're breaking up just a little bit, so I don't want to lose you. That's okay. So we're taking this topic, don't take a turn for the worse. I know when you and I talked to each other, I think earlier last month, it's been a while, Mm -hmm. I had to go back to my email. I'm like, oh my gosh. I did too. (laughs) And I want, I know that you're, you love, hernias are one of the things that you look at a lot, right? Yes, you're, you it's definitely, a very common thing. Mm-hmm. It's a very common thing. And 
I think that people ignore hernias. And I think when we talk about don't taking a turn for the worse, I'd like to look at hernias and I'd like to look at maybe what the signs and symptoms are and then what would cause you to have more concern more so than another and have someone seek medical attention. Mm -hmm, Sure. So it's true. We have patients sometimes who come in with um, symptoms of hernias and they tell me they've had pain or discomfort for years before (laughs) they actually come to us. So it's not uncommon for people to wait a long time. Right. Usually the symptoms that they present with is um, a bulge in the area. Um, I should probably backtrack to see what a hernia is. That's perfect. um, And and where we can find them. So most commonly, uh, you can either have them at the belly button, so which is called an umbilical hernia, or you can have them in the inguinal regions, uh, and we call them inguinal hernias. They are more common in men, especially the inguinal hernias, uh, but we certainly see females who have them as well. Mm. So um, symptoms can be a, a bulge, then you can actually see something bulging out in the groin, um, and discomforts. So most people, most patients, describe the sensation as a burning or aching sensation, um, more so if they're bending down, sitting for a long time, or doing anything that has a lot of pressure in the belly, so coughing, sneezing, lifting something heavy, um, or even if you have constipation and you have to strain for a long time, that can certainly increase the discomfort. Um, So those are the usual signs. So when someone presents to you, Mm -hmm. what, what causes them to seek medical attention after waiting so long? Is it the pain? Is it, does it change over time? It's usually the pain, the discomfort. So you're saying, now men we know procrastinate. I'm not going to generalize, but I am. Usually, yes. So they tend to procrastinate. So when a gentleman comes to you, how long have they usually waited? How, what's the length of time someone's really waited the longest? It, it really depends. I mean, I've had people who say they've had it for years. They don't even know how long they've had it. They don't even know. And then I have younger gentlemen who have been lifting a lot of weight. They just went mm-hmm. back to the gym or they changed a job. Um, that requires a lot of heavy lifting, and they've only had it for a couple of weeks, but due to the new activity, um, it causes them more discomfort, in which case they they seek medical attention. And do they get larger over time? Yes. So a hernia is never going to get smaller. Uh, It's a hole. Um, It's a defect in the fascia, which is the strength layer um, of the abdominal wall, Mm -hmm. meaning that once it's there, the more pressure we have in the abdominal cavity, and unfortunately we can't just lie flat and live our lives in another way. We have to live our lives. So with time, hernias are going to get bigger. Do you um, do any screenings up at at Mercy to bring people in to find them? So it's actually funny that you ask that because we are just going to be starting that. (laughs) I think we're planning on doing something like this in September. Um, where we will have an open, I don't know if it's going to be a one day or a couple days, right. where we will have an open um, meeting for people to get screened for that. So we do them down here in Greater Waterbury. The same thing has happened. So over the last, I'm going to say it's a good year and a half, almost two years, we've uh-huh. been doing the same thing. We've been doing monthly programs, uh-huh. and all of my general surgeons have been um, presenting. And it's a very small 15-minute presentation, and they actually screen everyone. And mostly it's men that are coming in, for uh-huh. sure. More commonly men, that's true. More commonly men. Now, what we do for hernias is much different than what we did in the past. Can we explain that a little bit? Of course. So um, it really depends on how much symptoms you have and really what other um, comorbidities, what other diseases you mm-hmm. have. 
If you're unfortunately a patient who is um, very sick or who has minimal symptoms, we can actually watch hernias because it does take a long time for them to grow. Mm. However, for most other patients, um, the option is to have a surgical repair. Mm. And again, there's a couple of options for those. Um, the biggest difference is that you can have a laparoscopic repair or an open repair. So an open repair is what we used to do in the past. Uh, which doesn't mean it's wrong. There's actually de there's definitely reasons to do an open repair in certain patients. Um, it's a um, incision right over the groin, probably about um, 10 centimeters in length, and we fix the hernia from the outside in. So um, anything that's bulging out, we push it back in, and then we place a mesh, and then we switch everything back together. For laparoscopic hernias repair, we do it from the inside out. So we actually put little cameras far away from where the hernia is. Um, and we have long instruments that you know, we can see into the abdominal cavity. We pull everything that's stuck in a hernia back into the abdominal cavity, place the mesh on the inside, um, and then we're going to close everything back up. So it's a little bit of a different way of where the mesh is, but right. the actual surgery is, is very similar. It ends up being the same thing. So what is the recovery time for the open versus the laparoscopic? If it's just a one-sided hernia, uh, because again, you can have both sides, obviously, for the one-sided hernia, the recovery is pretty much the same. Okay. The pain, uh, all the research that has been done about pain is about the same recovery. We usually say no heavy lifting for a couple of weeks, and again, every surgeon will have different um, perspectives. I usually say about four weeks, no more than 15, 20 pounds lifting, just to make sure everything heals. Um, some surgeons take a little longer. Some surgeons say, you know, two or three weeks should be fine. Right. Other than that, we do want you to walk. Walk as much as you can. Um, you'll feel tired after surgery for a couple of days, and it's painful. Right. So obviously, we'll give you no pain medication. Um, so I usually tell people, patients, take about a week off from work. Um, you can certainly go back to work earlier. It's easier to tell them a week and then right. go right. back earlier. Um but other than that, there's no restrictions about food, no restriction about um, any other activities other than lifting heavy things. Right, because it's really, it's really the you know the hernia that you're doing surgery on. You're really not affecting any major organs. No, this is just the abdominal wall, correct? Right, it's just the abdominal wall. So you're not going mm -hmm. as deep as into the whole abdominal cavity, and I think that's what scares people. Correct. Well, there are different ways, even laparoscopically, to fix hernia. Right. One of them is right in front of the abdominal cavity, so you never actually see the intestines, you never reach the abdominal cavity. Okay. The other one is actually getting into the abdomen, into right. the abdominal cavity, and doing it from there. They're both, all three of them are safe. All three have the same um, prognosis and the recurrence rate. So one thing actually, sorry, I'm going no, to mention is recurrence rates. Right. Um, I was going to ask that. Because it's perfect. It can happen. Mm. Um, even though you know, patients have hernias fixed, Years ago, they can occasionally come back. Um, usually, we quote about a 5 to 10% recurrence rate over lifetime. So, does, and does that depend on, number one, what the patient does for a living or their exercise program, their, their comorbidities, their, all those things? Correct. It depends on uh, quite a bit of things. So, first of all, we have to make sure everything heals. So, there's no heavy lifting mm -hmm. implies there. If you, you know, start lifting 200 pounds right after surgery, you definitely will have higher recurrence. Uh, weight is an issue. If you mm -hmm. are overweight, it does a lot of, um, it puts a lot of pressure on your abdominal wall. Right. Um, no matter what you do. 
um, if you're constipated, if you have a job that's very active, that again, requires a lot of heavy lifting, it can dispose you to have irregardless. Yeah, we're getting a little feedback, Doc. I want to make sure you stay close to your phone. Sure. So another question I had, you mentioned something about what you do when you're doing the repair, and you talked about the mesh. So a couple mm-hmm. things. What does the mesh do? So a mesh is just an extra strength layer. Okay. Um, in the past, and you mentioned we do things differently now, um, in the past years and years ago, we used to not use meshes. The repair was just done by defects. Um, but we found that with just sutures, there is high recurrence rates. Okay. You know, 20%, 30% of hernias coming back. So now we use meshes. They are uh, plastic, it's okay. polypropylene, um, so it does not react with the body, but it stays with you forever. The mesh does not dissolve. Um, it's just extra increases recurrence. So let me ask you another question. I'm going to ask you again to make sure you stay close to your phone. We're getting so much feedback. But one thing I wanted to talk about is there's so much on commercials now and TV and people hear so much about the mesh products. Are they safe? Oh, I know. I get that question a lot. You must get it all the time, right? I do. Um, It's it's not a hard question to answer. It is just hard to answer specifically for patients. Right. Um, I would say if we are going to use hernia, we are going to use mesh. Um, the reason why they have those commercials is that it can occasionally happen that if a mesh gets infected, right. then we do have to take it. Right. Um, it's a foreign material and it cannot, it will not get um, better with just antibiotics. Right. So a mesh can get infected several ways. Hmm. One is the least common while we place it in. Uh, everything is sterile in the operating room, so there is a very small likelihood that um, meshes will get infected while replacing them. Um, however, if there is a um, if there's an injury to the bowel, for example, that we don't see, yeah, there's bacteria in the bowel, mm-hmm. and those can transfer from the bowel to the mesh and infect the mesh. Or what can happen also is over time, over years and years, sometimes if a mesh um, is very adjacent to the bowel, yep. it can stick to it, and then with constant rubbing, it can actually grow into the bowel and get infected. And cause, right, and, and cause and cause the bowel material to come out. Correct. Okay. And in which case, we have to take it out. So it's very uncommon, but we do occasionally see this happening. Right, right. And I mean, I, and, and I threw it out there because mm-hmm. I know that that's definitely, you know, it's a question. People hear these things. I mean, oh, yeah, I but, get that question very often. You must actually. get it all the time. Now, another thing can hernia repairs be done robotically? They can. There's definitely surgeons who do them robotically, especially if they're large hernias. Um, it just depends on which surgeons you see. Okay. Okay, but they can be done robotically, uh-huh. and but basically it's it's very similar to laparoscopic in the recovery Correct. times, especially, right? Yep, it's going to be about the same for all of them. So the only sorry, you just reminded no, go me. Ahead. So the only recovery that is going to be faster is if you have both hernias. Oh, okay. At least then laparoscopic robotic will be faster than an open repair. Definitely, the open repair. You know, it's very rare too that we see a lot of open surgeries now, right? Everything's mm-hmm. you, everything's definitely either laparoscopic or robotic. I mean, that's what we do a ton of down here too. So I know that, but it's interesting to me. Some of my surgeons that um, have come out of school, they've not done as much traditional open surgery. 
True, more and more now we're um, we're taught to do them laparoscopically, so sometimes it can be a little bit hard yeah. to do them open, especially when we get used to just doing them laparoscopically all the time. But there are some instances, for example, if a patient had uh, radiation, for example, prostate cancer or oh. a lot of scar tissue from some other abdominal surgeries, it might be hard to do them laparoscopically just because all those um, planes will be um, very scarred down. Right. Um, um, I'm going to ask you to stay maybe in one location where just we keep getting in and out and everything you're saying is so important and I don't want to miss anything. Oh, I haven't been moving. I've been staying You've been staying. Window. She's staying still, Johnny. I don't know. I don't know. So it might be the interference of the atmosphere around you too because there's so many storms around. So I apologize to the audience. There's a lot of... I'm, it might be. I'm trying to stay as close as no, I can to the good. window and you're, not move. You're good now. Um, what I wanted to ask is because we did talk about uh, you know, they're more common in men. But when you see them in women, what's mm-hmm. the cause usually? Is it, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking only because I had two cesareans and I know my daughter had three. That's a lot of abdominal surgeries. Is it from cesarean sections or what could it be from? Similar cases? It depends what kind of hernia. So again, um, inguinal hernias are going to be a weakness of the abdominal wall. Right. Um you can have hernias from incisions, and those mm-hmm. are called incisional hernias. We haven't talked about those before. Right. Anytime we do any type of surgery, whether it's gallbladder or even hernia repair, um, when we have to go through the abdominal wall, when that wall heals, um, the tissue will never be as strong as the original tissue. So again, with straining, coughing, being overweight, um, that weakness can actually form a hole, which is a hernia. So and that can happen with any type of surgery, any type of surgery. Mm-hmm. So when we when we look at the the topic that we're saying, don't take a turn for the worse. What would you say in regards to hernias, especially? What would you say to the patient about waiting? I wouldn't wait too long unless you see a lump and it actually causes you absolutely no pain at all. Then you can wait. But if it, you see that it's getting bigger. Um, if it's getting more uncomfortable, more right. painful, there are symptoms that are what we call red flag symptoms, mm. in which case uh, you might even have to go to the emergency room. Mm. Um, and that is severe, sharp pain mm. at the site of where you think you have a hernia, which is associated with nausea, vomiting, not passing any bowel movements, because that might mean that you actually have some bowel that's stuck in the hernia. That's affected, uh, That went right? through the hole, correct. <sighs> bowel that went through the hole and lost its blood supply, and that's actually an emergency. I wouldn't even call the office, just go straight to the emergency room. Go straight to the emergency room, but don't wait. Uh The key is don't wait. Have it looked at. You know, we've done the the screenings here, like I said, in Greater Waterbury for a while now, and we can get up to 20, 25 people every month at these screenings. We walk away, the physicians walk away with more than half of them being positive for hernias. Oh, I'm not surprised. It's It's very incredible. It's incredible, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's such an incredible public service to be able for them to be able to see a physician. And so I'm so glad you guys are extending the same program up there. It's it's definitely proven to us to be very educational for the public. And we're able to take care of a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I think it is a good idea because a lot of people might be scared to go to the doctor. They're not sure what's going on. If it's something worthwhile, they don't want to waste our time. Right. But if you have any questions, it's honestly better to go to a doctor. The worst thing that can happen is we'll tell you, 
well, either you don't have a hernia or there's nothing to worry about. Or there's nothing to worry about. So speaking from a general surgery perspective, um, there's other things that you would tell people not to sit and mm-hmm. wait on. What would they be? What are uh, some other? What are, yeah, what are, I know <laughs> we talked a bit about gallbladder. We talked a bit about appendix. So yeah, so I think gallbladder is one of the things too that the signs and symptoms for gallbladder are so all over the place, and people push it off and hold it off until they really can't take it anymore. I'm sure you see that. True. Actually, today was a day full of patients who had, for some reason, gallbladder trouble. <laughs> I'm queen. I'm queen of it. I had mine done, so I, I know it's the good. whole thing. <laughs> so, but you're correct. Sometimes we have symptoms that are very typical of gallbladder uh, problems, which means you have pain either right underneath your breastbone mm-hmm. or um, kind of on the right side underneath your ribs. Mm. Um, the pain usually lasts, might last even a couple of hours. And usually happens after eating a meal that is fatty or fried. Mm. Um, Because the gallbladder has bile, which is used to um, break down fatty foods. Um, So those are the usual symptoms. But then there's symptoms that might be not typical. Some people have bloating, diarrhea, dyspepsia, um, in which case we have to do a little bit more digging into the history to figure out what's going on. So what is the typical, what what usually drives a person to you? A, kind of a vague abdominal pain on and off, like you're describing, and then you it's have to do a walk-up. sharp pain. Sh- sharp it's usually pain. A, sh- a sharp pain, yep. Sometimes they go to the emergency room, have an ultrasound done, they see that there are stones in the gallbladder that's likely causing the pain, and then they are sent to us. Now, can can someone just live with the stones in the gallbladder if they're yeah. not, if right? Correct. A lot of people have gallstones. They don't even know about them. Right. If it's not causing any trouble, we leave them alone. We leave do not take the gallbladder out. Mm-hmm. And when they start moving around and they start moving to places they're not supposed to be, that's mm-hmm. when the pain starts. True. Um, usually the pain is from stretching. So if there are stones in the gallbladder that cannot leave the gallbladder, right. there's a lot of ducts um, that are very, very small. Um, so there's an obstruction. So all that bile builds up behind the stone, and the stretching of the gallbladder causes pain. What causes the gallstones? Most of the time, it's cholesterol. Mm. It does not mean that you're eating a lot of cholesterol, although that can happen too. Um, some people just metabolize it differently. Um, and we also have noticed that people who lose quite a bit of weight, right. um, for example, after bariatric surgery or if they're actively trying to lose weight, right. those patients can also develop um, cholesterol stones. They develop the cholesterol stones. So when I was in uh-huh. nursing school, I don't know if you ever heard this. So when we were in nursing school, how they would describe it is anybody fair fat and fair fat and 40 that's what they would tell us and i'm like seriously sure enough i was fair sure enough i was 40 and sure enough i had lost some weight (laughs) yep and they always are female because it's more common in females yes it is definitely more common in female, and it is not fun it's uncomfortable (laughs) it can be very very painful and you know you described something you said you know People show up in the emergency room, you know, and it's 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 funny because you know, say don't take a turn for the worse. But some people with um, issues in their gallbladder, the pain is sudden, right? It doesn't yes. necessarily always you happen over wake, time, so you don't know what's going on. Correct. You can wake them up from sleep, especially if it's the first time they've had an episode. It can be very scary, right? 
I was, <laughs> I worked for um, the radiology group that was affiliated at the hospital at the time, and I was working. I had never had a gallbladder problem in my life, and I doubled uh-huh. over in pain in the middle of a patient that I was interviewing. And the, oh, girl, yeah. and the girls are like, put her on the ultrasound table. It's really beneficial when you work. <laughs> put her on the table. And they're scanning me, and the radiologist came in. Next thing I knew, they were calling the general surgeon. They're like, well, he's going to just see you. I had an IV mm-hmm. in me, and I was going to surgery within two hours. <laughs> oh, at least it was expedient. Oh, my goodness, yes. So it definitely they moved me along quickly. But mm-hmm. I'll, it is one of the most uncomf- uncomfortable things that ever happened to me I, and I'm sure the audience out there has some people have experienced it oh yes it can be honestly very very painful so now the surgery for a gallbladder is that mm-hmm. similar to what you would do um, for someone you know having hernia pierce meaning laparoscopic can you do yes. or opened right or robotic most of the uh, both so laparoscopic and robotic yep. most of the repairs oh, sorry repairs most of the excisions that we do for gallbladder are now done laparoscopically uh, it's very very rare that we have to do the open version that's only if there is any complications or or bleeding or any issues how about if the stones fall into the common bile duct which happens a lot right in some cases um, there is a couple of things we can do um, one is if they're very small, we right. can actually just flush them out mm-hmm. and do what's called an intraoperative cholangiogram. So mm-hmm. we actually put a little catheter with a, um, a contrast dye and get some x-rays and we can see if there is any stones in the ducts. Okay. If they're small, we can just flush them out with saline. Um, another thing we can do is actually leave them there and then a day later have the gastroenterologist do what's called an ERCP, mm. which is a procedure that's uh, an endoscopy where a um, little camera is inserted into the intestines and the stones are swept from the other way, from the other side. Oh, really? So mm-hmm. I had ERCPs too. That wasn't fun. <laughs> I, I had the whole thing. This is a long time ago, though, so I'm, I'm clean now, I think. You're it's a been, good it's been, for this conversation. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. It's not, it's been 19 years. I think I'm well done with it. Um, recovery time for someone that's had their gallbladder similar to that um, or hernia. Similar to hernias. Again, no heavy lifting because we have to go through the abdominal wall. Right. Um, definitely walking is a good thing. We do want patients to walk after this. Right. Diet. It actually depends on who you talk to. Some hmm. surgeons say, ah, "You can eat whatever you want afterwards." I tend to tell people not to eat anything fatty or fried for the first couple of weeks, maybe two weeks after right. surgery, right. because it can give you diarrhea and bloating. And if you have fresh incisions, it's just no fun. It's no fun. Right, right. How mm-hmm. about over time? Do people feel like they need to adjust their diet at all? Do they digest differently because they don't have their gallbladder? Most people do not. There's about 3 to 5% of people who might have constant diarrhea after mm. Um, their gallbladder is removed, in which case we can give them medication that binds the bile, um, such as cholestyramine. Right. Um, but most of the time, you can go back to eating anything you want. Anything you want. So mm-hmm. we usually take a, a quick break at this point, Doc. So we're going to take a quick break, and we come mm-hmm. back. We're going to talk a little bit more about not taking a turn for the worse. Be right back. Sure. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Welcome back, everyone. This is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England, and we are here medically speaking tonight for our usual Wednesday evening program. Johnny was mixing the two musics together. That's okay, Johnny. I don't mind. I don't mind. I don't. I don't mind. This beautiful jazz music. Who was that? Vinny. Vinny. Perfect. We had Vinny and Gala. I have to. My Vinny and Gala from from Prospect, Connecticut. I will share my music with him anytime. So welcome back. We are medically speaking this evening. We're medically speaking um, with a general surgeon at um, one of our hospitals out in Springfield, Mercy Medical Center, um, which is part of Trinity Health of New England. And we have on the line Dr. Alexandra. Grodnick, who is a general surgeon and um, with a specialty in minimally invasive surgery. Hi, Doc. Thank you for hanging on. Hi. I'm Thank, still here. Yeah, you're still there. We didn't lose you. So for no. your knowledge, the music that John was playing um, is a young uh, saxophonist who grew up here in Greater Waterbury. Um, and he went oh. to our local schools and he's a musician, uh, Vinny Angala. So he's, oh, I love Justice. That's very nice. Yes, you sh- definitely should look him up. He He's absolutely incredible. He's uh, been everywhere. So we have a lot of popular people that grew up in this area. Right, Johnny? <laughs> so we are medically speaking with Dr. Grodnick tonight on not taking a turn for the worse. And we we're talking about it from a general surgery perspective and looking at some of those things that are more common, such as hernias and gallbladders. And it's so important to know those signs and symptoms and make sure you seek medical attention because the sooner you go, the better you're going to feel and the less complications. Right, Doc? Correct. You know, we definitely want to make sure that we educate our general general populations as to what some of those signs and symptoms are, which you've done a great job on. Um, one of the things as a general surgeon, um, I think you probably see a lot, and I'm not sure how much um, surgery you do on that, but I'm sure you could speak to it, is colon cancer. Um, we actually do see quite a bit of it. Oh. Um, it comes to us from different ways. You know, either... Uh, we see patients in the hospital who have an actual obstruction because mm-hmm. of the cancer. Right. Um, or most of the time, uh, we are sent those patients from the gastroenterologist after they had a colonoscopy and a, a cancer is found that way. We are so um, we are we are we are so diligent, especially I know across Trinity Health of New England about you know promoting early detection and screening. But it happens. Mm-hmm. It happens. You know. And, of course, even and, with screening, it happens sometimes. Definitely. So what are, you know, when we talk about don't taking a turn for the worse, what are some of the things that you see um, with our signs and more signs and symptoms for patients? Um, the signs and symptoms of colon cancer can be very vague. Mm. There's usually not much abdominal pain, to be honest. Wow. Although some people might have some cramping belly pain. Uh, but it's usually a change in the bowel habits. Mm. So, for example, you might start having diarrhea or the other way, constipation, Mm. um, or narrowing of the stool uh, that lasts for more than a couple of days. Mm. Pretty much any time you have any type of change that lasts for a while, I would think that it's something to be concerned about. And I always tell my Uh, patients to go to their primary care physicians first, right? They're kind of like your quarterback. True. They're kind of a gateway. They can tell you, is this something to worry about? Should we send you to a gastroenterologist Mm. or should we not? So generally, when you have those changes in bowel habits, they'll send them to the gastroenterologist and they'll usually do a colonoscopy, correct? 
most of the time, yes, if there is any worrisome finding. Um, something else you might have is actually bleeding, mm-hmm. rectal bleeding. Um, occasionally, however, if the bleeding is very um, very small, you might not really see bright red blood. Right. Your stools might look darker, and we usually call them tarry dark stool. Right. Um, so that also is uh, a concerning um, symptom. Or one more thing is weakness or fatigue, because if you're losing blood consistently from uh, your rectum, even if you're not seeing it, you might be anemic, which is going to cause you to be very tired all the time. So the common patient that comes into you, is there a common patient? Do you see more men or women? Do you see young or old? What seems to be, you know, the norm? I usually see uh, both men and women. Um, I'm not sure if there is a predisposition for one or the other. Okay. Um, usually it does tend to be patients who are a little bit older, right. although sometimes, unfortunately, we do sometimes have young patients in their right. 30s as well. Right. You know, is there, when you see a younger person, what what seems to be the link? Is it a genetic link? Is it, or is it just bad luck? Um, a little bit of both. Oh. It depends. There are certainly some genetic um disease that predispose you to um, colon cancer, and hopefully you know if somebody in your family had it. Right. Uh, so if you have a family history of colon cancer, it's always a good idea to get screened. Yeah. But I tell everybody, thinking... if there's one thing I can get out of this mm. discussion today, yeah. please get a colonoscopy. Right. And they and they usually, if, if, if you have a family history, they let you get the screenings earlier. Insurance pays, correct? Oh, yeah. Right. Correct. If the if if definitely if there's a strong family history and I know, um, we de- we have genetic counseling here in Greater Waterbury and I know our gastroenterologists when they find someone young, they send them right away for genetic counseling. True, because you want to test to make sure that there's nobody else in the family that might have the same thing that would need to be tested earlier. Right. So when you get a patient in who's you, they found something on in, in a colonoscopy, what's the first thing that happens? Uh, so the first thing that happens when they see me is obviously I get their their history, their physical, try to figure out how long they've been there, um, if there's any worrisome sign of, of obstruction, because that's right. a different thing that we can get into later. Absolutely. Um, also, is there any signs that would make me think that there is any, unfortunately, metastasis? Has mm-hmm. the cancer gone anywhere else? Mm-hmm. This is something we need to find out, hopefully, before we get to surgery. So there's more and more workup that we're doing before we go right to surgery now. Most of the time, yes, unless it's an emergency because right. there is a, a hole or a perforation. But usually, yes, we do want to see whether the cancer has spread, for example, into the liver or the lung. So we do need some imaging, such as a CAT scan. Right, to just make sure you know what you're dealing with. Correct, because it then changes the, um, the surgery quite a bit. But most of the time, we're able to just you know, take the piece of colon that has the cancer out and then go from there. And... A long time ago, you know, especially, and I think this is the worry of most people when they get a colonoscopy, they think if they find something, they're going to go in, they're going to do surgery, and I'm going to have a bag. And that's not as commonplace as it used to be. True. Most of the time, um, colon care is it's, it's urgent, but it's not an emergency. Right. So we do have a little bit of time to plan. And for most patients, we're able to reconnect the colon and you do not need a bag. And you don't need a bag. Is there certain areas Correct. that you would see the, the cancer that, you, that, that wouldn't be the case? Not really the area. Um, 
So let, let's talk about when would you need a bag. Okay. Usually if uh, more so for diverticulitis, which is mm. infection and inflammation of right. the colon, right. than for colon cancer. Um, you would need a bag if the connection that we do after doing surgery, you know, from one colon to the other colon, right. if it's very low down in your pelvis and we think that there is not great blood supply mm. because, for example, you had radiation in the past. Okay. To protect that connection so it doesn't disintegrate, we might actually give um, do a bag. Okay. Which is called an ostomy. Right. To protect that area. Right. And most of the time, it's temporary. It's usually for a couple of months, you know, three, four months. And then most of the time, we're able to reverse it. And you're able to reconnect. And I've seen that so much. It's incredible mm-hmm. how far we've come. I mean, I definitely go a bit back in, in my nursing. So, you know, we didn't I'm do I'm sure that. things have changed. They definitely have changed. We did not see that as much. You know, most people that, you know, had the surgery. And even with diverticulitis, which I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm, what is diverticulitis? That's another thing we can talk about. Yeah, we have a lot. I know we could go on all night. I definitely know that. There's a lot to talk about. If it doesn't rain and my connection doesn't (laughs) drop. (laughs) I'll keep you. So diverticulitis is um, an inflammation of the colon, which is due to um, the colon is like a tube. If you roll a a newspaper into a tube, that's your colon. Okay. Um, Because of what we call the Western diet, so a lot of Mm. meat, not a lot of fibers. There's a lot of pressure in the colon, mm-hmm. um, especially in patients who are constipated. And that tends to um, form as little pockets of um, mucosa, which is the lining of the colon, to kind of stretch outwards mm-hmm. in areas of, of weakness. So the first step is just what we call diverticulosis, O-S-I-S, which right. is just those little pockets. Okay. Those tend to, if anything were to happen, those tend to bleed. You can actually have quite a bit of massive bleeding from the rectum. Wow. Um, the other thing that can happen is if there is any perforation of those little pockets, then bacteria from inside the colon can get into your abdominal cavity and uh, cause infection. Wow. Um, and that can be either mild, in which case you would just have a little bit of pain, mostly on the left left side, left lower side of the belly, in which case we can just give you antibiotics and that's it. Or it can be massive hole and a massive perforation where you can actually have stool in your abdominal cavity. Mm. And that is an emergency, in which case you would certainly have a bag after that. So at no, least temporarily, we, we say don't take a turn for the worse. I mean, with someone that's got this, they've got to be very careful with diet. They've got to watch their signs and symptoms and, and really be followed closely. True. The thing is, we're not sure if not everybody who has diverticulosis will have diverticulitis, okay. the, the infection. Right. It's hard to tell who will and who will not. Hmm. Um, the best thing is obviously prevention, trying not to get it in the first place, which is hard. But we recommend staying away from constipation, drinking a lot of water, um, eating a diet which is high in fibers. Right. Now, that's, um, those the, are all that, things. that's the key to everything is the diet, right? When it comes to these types of things, right? Is really staying. For a lot of diseases, yes. <sighs> we do this Which Western is so hard diet. To do. It's hard. You know, we're, you know, I, I sit here thinking about it, but it's so true. I mean, you know, especially with our busy work lives, and I'm sure you see it more than ever, you know, being a physician, it's hard to eat healthy. It is very hard. It's hard to eat healthy. It's hard to exercise. We should tell my patients all the time, but. When I'm alone at night and it's 7, 8 p.m., 
Yeah, definitely. You, you do. You have to force yourself. I know that. Mm-hmm. It's not pleasant. No. <laughs> if anybody's listening, I don't like going to a gym. <laughs> no, no. But there's little things that people do, you know, that we tell people to do, you know, and use the stairs, park far away, you know, do the best you can to do to get your steps in, you know, look at your. Yes. Any type of activity. Yeah. Just keep moving. Don't sit mm-hmm. still. My kids were laughing at me this weekend because like, my, don't you sit down. I was up and down the stairs, up and down the stairs. We had people over and I was running around doing things and they laugh at me. And I said, I'm like my father. Just call me little Freddie. But that's how we are. You know, it's in my nature, but I'll never get my, I may be tired the next day. My feet might hurt mm-hmm. a little bit, but I definitely got my steps in. <laughs> but, it, but it's very true. Any type of activity, I mean. Honestly, even cleaning the house, you can go into the bathroom, the whole house, and clean all the bathrooms. That's activity. You're moving more than you would just sitting on the couch and, and watching TV. Right, Everything definitely. Is. I always say to my husband, nope, we're not sitting in front of TV. Let's go. Got to move. <laughs> definitely have yeah. to move. So, you know, back to what we were talking about. We had started with colon yeah. colon cancer, and, you know, we did, diverted a bit to, to diverticulosis and diverticulitis. And you said, you know, patients that have surgery for diverticulitis, it's very hard to reconnect them at times, right? It depends how much uh, contamination there is. I'm losing you a little bit, Doc. Sorry. sorry. It depends how much contamination there is. Okay. Um, If it's just a little perforation, most of the time, not a trouble, we can reconnect them. Okay. Um, If there is a big hole in the colon with a lot of stool in the abdomen, then there's no way we're going to be able to reconnect reconnect, just because it's not going to hold. Right. Is that more in men or women? I haven't really found a predilection one to the other. I'm not sure if there is one. There might be. Yeah. But yeah, I know, I, you know, it's okay. funny. I, I've, I've, it's, is it common? Because I, I don't know too many people with it. And when I was in practice, I saw it more when I was, you know, on the floors, but I don't see it as much anymore. And I don't know, because we are more conscious of our diets than we used to be. I don't we, know. Do still, we do still see it quite often. Um, it seems to come in waves, to be mm, honest. There really? are some months where we have almost nobody. And then there is months where almost all of our patients are here with oh. diverticulitis. Oh, and that must be so frustrating. It, it is. I mean, most of the time it's something that's been there for years and years in the making. So it's not something that you can reverse. Right. With no. You know, and that's why, you know, we say don't take a turn for the worst. Don't get it in the first place trying to, to, to maintain that healthier lifestyle because that could be mm-hmm. a major complication. You know, they even say with colon cancer, it's what we're eating. In a lot of ways, aside from the genetics, but trying to stay away yes. from certain foods. There, there has been some studies that some of the foods that you eat might impact colon cancer. Definitely. You know, the high fiber is what we try to stay with, as you said, and staying away mm-hmm. from some of the the fatty products and the and the um, meat, the red meats. And, and the red those. meat, yep. And all those things. And we are definitely a culture of that. You know, we definitely have been over the years. And as much as you try to stay away from it, there's people that stay away from all those things and something may still happen. You just sometimes, you just never know. This is unfortunately all statistics. It's just risk. So you do increase or decrease your risk by doing or not doing these things. Unfortunately, it doesn't mean that it's going to work in right, the end. Definitely. I wanna I wanna be optimistic. Still do those things. Still studio, yes, because you're you're yes. still living a healthier lifestyle, right? Which prevents Correct. other pre 
three, you know, comorbidities such as diabetes, heart disease, all those other things. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Because that, that can impact all the surgeries too. If you have diabetes, Absolutely. you have a higher risk of infections. Um, it just makes everything harder. It makes everything harder to treat. Right. Correct. So including surgeries. Definitely. So we don't have a ton of time left, but I wanted to maybe touch on one more thing. And uh-huh. it's it's something that I don't know how much how often you do see it, but it's definitely something when or when not to call the doctor or pull the trigger. What are the signs and symptoms of someone that may be having appendicitis? So usually the what we call the textbook signs of appendicitis is pain that usually starts very vaguely around the belly button first. You just feel kind of sick to your stomach, maybe being nauseous, vomiting. And then the pain moves away from the belly button and then goes into your right your right, right lower quadrant. Um, most of the time, the pain can be quite intense, doesn't go away. Again, can be associated with nausea, vomiting. Um, some people might have diarrhea with it, although not often. Um, some people can have fevers as well. Uh, but again, pain that doesn't go away in a couple of hours. Um, the easiest thing is call your family physician, your primary care, um, or go to the emergency room. And what will they do? What's the first thing they do to rule it out or to or to or to confirm? Um, most of the time, a CAT scan. They do a CAT scan, not an ultrasound. Mm-hmm. Ultrasound they can do in uh, in young children. Okay. Uh, or in somebody who is a very has a very thin body wall. Okay. Uh, but most of the time, we end up getting a CAT scan now. You get a CAT scan. Do, uh-huh. they, do they do blood work to see if you have an, is there an elevation in your white count or anything like that? Yes. So that's the other thing that you put most of the time have. Not everybody has a high white count. Okay. Uh, but most of the time, yes, because it is an infection. So, you know, that can turn bad quick, right? Um. Yes, I know. <laughs> I certainly <laughs> had people who said, oh, I've had pain for four days. Wow. And they just have, you know, acute appendicitis, but it's not perforated. Wow. That's really the thing we want to avoid. We want right. to avoid the um, appendix from rupturing, from perforating, right. because it makes it a lot more messy. You have to stay in a hospital longer. Um, and that usually can happen even if you wait 24 hours. So, so what I would is, say don't, don't wait too long. Mm-hmm. So what is the function of the appendix? <laughs> It's funny that you ask. Um, There's a couple of theories. Um, In children, the appendix has a lot of lymph node tissue. Hmm. So, for example, if children have a um, a cold or any type of um, infection, in the appendix, there are a lot of cells that fight infection. Hmm. Actually, that increases your white blood cells. Hmm. Um, In adults, it doesn't really have any role anymore. We used to think that in the past, this used to be kind of extra little stomach uh, to help us digest food because we used to eat way more fibers um, in the past. Um, In adults, it doesn't really have a lot of function, to be honest. So we can live without it, in other words. Oh, yes. You wouldn't (laughs) even notice. You won't even notice it's there, right? Or gone. So, you know, it's funny because uh, do you see many of that anymore? Do you see much appendicitis? It, again, it kind of comes in waves. It sometimes comes in we waves. have a couple of them in one night. Sometimes we don't have any for a couple of months. Uh, but it's still quite common. And it can actually happen to patients who are older than they think. I think in most people's head, appendicitis, appendicitis happens to uh, young patients. Young you know, adults. Somebody in their, exactly, yeah. teens, 20s. Yeah. Um, it can certainly happen if you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s. 
Yeah, and and so there, so there you go. So that's you know in point with the topic don't take a turn for the worse i worry about that older population who thinks that they're not a candidate for something like that anymore and they're just pushing it off to maybe just some gas or you know even uh-huh. if it's a short they might pain, think it's, just it's not up it. in the status correct right it is actually more dangerous in elderly population because one thing that can cause up in the status if you're elderly is actually cancer oh you're kidding there is there is appendicitis uh, there is cancer of the appendix Really? Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, it's funny you say that. I did just hear about that. I know someone who that happened to. They thought she had ovarian. And when they they um, did the surgery and they tested mm-hmm. the tissue, it was appendix. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's not common, but no. it can certainly happen. Yes. And, and because of that, it spreads quickly because you don't especially know. If it, especially if it perforates and, and bursts. Wow. Wow, that's incredibly mm-hmm. interesting. Well, Doc, we are coming very close to the end. Do, anything you want to end with before I, I let you go be with your family? I think the one thing I would say again is please get a colonoscopy. <laughs> Definitely get a colonoscopy. Thank you. Thank you, Doc. So this you're is welcome. Thank Doc, you for having oh, me. Oh, you're welcome. This is Dr. Alexandra Ogrodnik, um, a general surgeon with Mercy Medical Center in Springfield. If you want to learn more about her, certainly click on mercycares.org and click on Trinity Health of New England Medical Group, and it'll take you right to information about all the physicians. So, Doc, thank you again for joining me. You have a great mm-hmm. night. Thank you. Have a good evening. Thank you. Bye. I want to thank everyone for joining us. That's an incredible topic. Um, I think it's really important. Again, we um, did have a primary care physician on earlier in the week, or last week, the end of last week. But I don't think Chris did a tape for us, Johnny. We'll find out. We'll find out tomorrow. But definitely important to know when to look at certain signs and symptoms. The key is don't wait. Don't wait. If you have any questions, call your physician. And it's always best to go to your primary care physician. And if you don't have a primary care physician, I have close to 50 primary care physicians in my network right here in Greater Waterbury. You can go on stmh.org, click on the Trinity Health of New England Medical Group, click on primary care, and I guarantee you there is a primary care physician in any part of Greater Waterbury that you live in. We have physicians in the North End, East End, West End, We have physicians out in Naugatuck, which is close to the south end. We have physicians in Watertown and in Cheshire. So we definitely have, and Wolcott. I don't want to forget Dr. Pruner and and Dr. Giacomazzi out in Wolcott. So we have so many primary care physicians. Don't have one, definitely need to seek one. I was at the um, Waterbury Senior Center today doing a health fair, and there were a ton of seniors that came up to me and said to me, my doctor's retiring or my doctor's not practicing anymore, and I haven't seen one. So, you know, I was able to connect them. So certainly take advantage of that. So I am so happy you can join me tonight. This is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital. Have a great weekend.